Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Red Zone. I am so happy to be back home here in Mexico for the viewers wondering why I'm wearing darker glasses is because I've been up for a ridiculously long time. <laughs> yes, I have. Welcome, everyone. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I think I'm going to open up the phone lines at some point tonight because I have to hear your guys' opinion on some of the stuff. I do want to say thank you so much to Derek Barn. Of course, Ben Fong and the M2 Sant for holding it down. I had actually effed up. I will tell you guys what happened. I had a family member pass away and um, I went to go to the Bay Area to pay my respects and I got my days confused and I swore that the service was on Saturday so I had set everything up to have Varn fill in for me which he did valiantly and I was prepared to leave home home is Mexico and start my drive up north. And so as I was all packed, ready to go, I did all the weird things that I do before I leave my house that I won't get into. And I was like, oh, which funeral home is it? Because I couldn't remember because there's only two where I'm from. And it's not like they're that far apart. I could probably walk to both of them. Like They're not that far apart. And as I looked down, I was like, oh, it's the wrong date. I was like, fuck. It's Tuesday. 
so it was like at that point it was like three in the morning and i was like there's no way i'm doing the show barn's already set up they can do it and then i left one at 1 a.m tuesday morning got to the viewing paid my respects saw my young son for a little bit and then came right back home so another fun 30 hours of driving steve says jason with the heroin dealer chic these are prescription glasses steve because i'm blind <laughs> they look darker than they are they're not that dark the darker ones would have been way kind of coke hitty and that's not the look we're going for today today we're going for oh my god i can't believe i'm still awake so on this ridiculously long journey um it's about 12 hours depending on border traffic and then traffic in various areas and then you know you hit weird stuff on the way there's weird weather and you know you, you, driving 600 some miles i think total was a little under 1200 this time around and uh i i just wanted to listen to not a podcast, but people talking, if that makes sense. And I knew once I hit a certain point where the sports radio would go out, then I could just turn on music. And usually I'm pretty bad about that. And I forgot again to charge my phone and it died. You know, it didn't have enough battery. So again, I had to listen to like conservative radio. If you listen to the main show, you've heard me whine about conservative radio, but also, I think more people should listen to it in this world because if you just watch people that have someone watch conservative stuff for them so they can get like jokes for or like hot takes for, you should listen to it for yourself because it is way more what the fuck than even the stuff you see on shows where people talk about that stuff. Is It's ridiculous. But the one constant, for some reason, on the way down that I can get, there's a station. I'm not even being funny. The the a tower for it is near my house. I can walk to the tower for it. And it's a sports station in San Diego. And their signal can reach kind of the outskirts of the Bay Area. So when I'm going down, back down to Mexico, I get this station. And they run a lot of ESPN shows. And listening to some of the stuff these people were saying on the radio about sports, I was like, do you guys ever talk about the game itself? Or do you only want to talk about drama that you have created out of nowhere and the outfit is very weather underground saxophonist <laughs> for those that will be listening to the show i advise you to watch it so you can see these insults in real time um i will take them all i'll take all the insults you have for whenever I'm wearing, because again, I spent so much time in my car. I feel like my car and I are one. And I just wanted to 
vent with you guys for a little bit, and all you do is give me shit. <laughs> That's okay. It's fine. At least, at least you guys are funny. Again, the TIR audience is a very intelligent audience with a biting wit. I feel like we've helped cultivate that. But again, so I'm listening to these people talk about not the game, not any game. And you hear a lot of the same thing over and over at a certain time in the night because they just run kind of a replay. So during the week, a lot of the stuff you get is gamblers that have paid for time and gambling on sports. And I think we got into this a little bit on the last show, me and Mac, Mac and I, um, where gambling has incorporated you know, bits of fantasy sports in there. You know, they've they've co-opted um, certain aspects of fantasy sports. So if you remember, if you get in your way back machine to how morning shows used to look, um, as fantasy started to get bigger, I would say in the early mid-aughts, there would be a fantasy person that would come on and, and predict what they thought someone would do. I think so-and-so is going to throw two touchdowns and this guy is going to run for this many yards. And I'm like, what, how are you figuring that out? What, what math equation are you using to figure that out? And the, the thing that I don't like about gambling and sports analysis is gambling is all about patterns. And sometimes math equation, a card counting, there is a equation that you do to get, you know, to figure out what card is going to come next in a, in a deck. But if the roulette people, sometimes it's just like patterns and statistics. And sports is different, right? You can you can try to use those metrics, but it doesn't always work. You know, Bill Buckner, the one of statistically the greatest first baseman to ever put on a first base glove made the most famous error in baseball history by letting a ball go between his legs that, you know, started a, a rally that caused uh, the series to be tied against the uh, Mets. It was the Boston Red Sox against the Mets. And, uh, and then of course the next day, the, uh, the Mets, the Mets won. And for the longest time, that was kind of, you know, this iconic image of baseball was this ball going through Bill Buckner's legs. Again, who statistically is one of the the greatest first baseman ever play the game. Things just happen in sports, you know. And when you hear these people talk, they don't talk about the game as much as they talk about patterns. These guys play better at home. These guys do this when they're away. These guys do this after a day-night doubleheader. It's just patterns. It's not about sports. They don't have any, they're not talking about how they play against certain kinds of pitching. And no, no, it's, it's annoying. And it also, fantasy sports puts value on people. And I don't really like the way that this permeates into society. I think we kind of underestimate the power of this stuff to like permeate into society. And we, we spoke about this on the last episode, how a lot of these sports guys sound like they're analysts at McKinsey when they talk about the game. 
It's all about contracts and why you should cut a person before uh, a term is due on their contract, um, which is interesting because they do this really weird both sides of the mouth thing where they're real comfortable about talking about getting rid of certain players. So, for example, in Chicago, uh, the in foot for football, the Bears own the first pick of the draft. And there is a very good quarterback coming out of USC, one that I am very high on named Caleb Williams. But the Bears also have a guy they spent a first round pick on, a guy named Justin Fields, who I think he's in his third year, finally started to look like he was coming around and playing pretty well towards the end of the year. Even in some of the losses, he was actually looking pretty good. Um, but there's a lot of talk about, well, should you cut him? He's going to be a cap hit. And his contract says this. If you cut him now for the contract, you trade him and this, and then you get Caleb Williams. And this is it. like, but you're not talking about football. You're talking about cutting people for the financial benefit of billionaire owners. Why should I, John Q. regular fan, give a shit about that? They treat it as if it's this inside baseball, pardon the pun, kind of thing you should know. And these things were even added into the video games for football. There's an ownership mode where you can move a team and trade players and you have a salary cap and as if any of this means anything to these people, right? Um, and I was like, when are you guys going to talk about football? There was a time where sports shows, pregame shows, were like an hour. And they talked about the game. They talked about the teams, who was injured, um, different strategies how they had been playing, what this game means for the team, for the playoffs or the standing in the division. That still happens a little bit, but there's so much drama. It's like, fucking hey, Are you guys ever going to talk about the game? <laughs> so... If if anybody watching the show has ever made the gorgeous drive, <laughs> it's not really gorgeous, from the Bay Area to Southern California or vice versa, not on the 101, not on Highway 99, but I-5, oof, and I-5 in the dark during a rainstorm. It's just pitch black. You're just dodging trucks. You're dodging trucks for like six hours. I'm listening to this just over and over and over until I get to Bakersfield. I'm like going to turn the radio off. I'm going to close my eyes for two hours so I don't die on the way home. And then I'm going to turn it back on and do this all over again. And like the, the peak show of ESPN is on about this point. Right. And I have one goal to get back home, and that is to bypass L.A. traffic. 
There's a few things that are worse than LA traffic. Getting your testicles caught in a cheese grater, catching your partner, banging your bestie, losing an animal, losing a pet. That's about it. Those are the only things that are worse than LA traffic. So I, I, my strategy was, to, and that was, I was beating it. It's like I got this. I got to, I almost said Santa Rita, Santa Clarita, which is where Magic Mountain is. And again, I know most people that aren't from California have no idea what I'm talking about. Just know Magic Mountain is like Disneyland for poor people. <laughs> so the ESPN main sports show comes on. This is their fucking heavy hitters. This is their big time show. These people fucking sucked. Oh my God. They started the show and there's all these conversations they create that don't make sense to me. Like, um, meltdowns. Who had the biggest meltdown? Was it the Dallas Cowboys or the Philadelphia Eagles? Which meltdown meant more? Like, really? You guys, you guys sat in a room with producers. Um, and this is, this was the angle that you were going to, you were going to go with, which is which meltdown is more meltdowny. I don't, I don't even know what that means. I, every team that lost is pissed, right? It's, it, do you think the Dallas Cowboys are sitting in their locker room after a, a very good 12 and four season And they and they they're looking at their cell phones with all the you know attaboy. We'll get them next year. Text messages from friends and family. And they and Dak Prescott, the quarterback of the Cowboys, looks over to C.D. Lamb and goes, "At least we didn't melt down like the Eagles, huh?" What the fuck? Who gives a shit? Someone says we got to fill airtime, Jerry. <laughs> It's it's funny you say that because there's so many things that we talk about on this show that have nothing. And again, we do we do tangent. I don't mind a three hour show that goes on certain tangents. Everything feels like Jim Rome, and I feel like Jim Rome definitely, sadly, created a disgusting beast with his "have a take, don't suck" saying, and. Jim Rome is a monster player in sports talk media. We can never forget that. And I don't say that as a fan. I always thought Jim Rome was a douchebag from watching his show on ESPN. He's come on late at night when he called uh, Jim Everett. At the time, Jim Everett was a quarterback for the Rams. He's called him Chris Everett, meaning Chris Everett Lloyd, the women's tennis player. Basically. He said Jim Everett threw like a girl because often Jim Everett threw off his back foot 
due to succumbing to pressure in his face. So Jim Everett, who's like, what, 6'5", 6'4", 240, he's not a little guy, went on that show and said, I bet you won't call me Chris Everett to my face. And Jim Rome seizing this opportunity. And you saw, if you if you watch the clip, you can watch the clip. Uh, he's shaking. Because Jim Rome, maybe 5'6", maybe, it's a little dude. Little dude talking. And he goes, I bet, and Jim Everett goes, I bet you you won't. Jim Rohn goes, I bet you I will. And Jim Everett again goes, I bet you you won't. Jim Rohn goes, all right, Chris. He says, say Chris again. Chris? And Chris, Chris Everett gets up, flips the table over, and I believe he hits him in the nose. And then producers quickly come in. They cut to commercial. Everett's gone. He later had to apologize. Jim Rome turned into a hero for people because of that. I don't know why. He was being mean. It's not like that's going to make Jim Everett play better. Right? What? Why? We forget that was a style of media at a certain time. But um, that still is what sports talk is it's just be mean have a take don't suck what happens when sports talk is regular news have a take don't suck our world left media is filled with takes it's all it is is takes it's my analysis it's a take whatever that's fine just be honest but that was one of the takes, right? Whose meltdown was worse? And these guys, they were just yelling about it. They were yelling at each other about meltdowns. And I thought to myself, I watched the playoffs. There's a bar here in Rosarito that I go to. It's literally cheaper for me to go to the bar than to pay for like the NFL package. And I don't drink. So there's that. And it's a cool little family atmosphere, and they have TVs everywhere, and when they know you, you can watch whatever game you want to watch. So if everybody wants to watch one game and you really want to watch them, I'll oh, we'll set you up over here. There's a TV right there. You watch them. And uh, I watched all the playoff games, and you know what? Every team that lost, I think they feel pretty shitty. I, f- I think they feel like they had a meltdown. I don't know if one is better than the other. I will say that the Eagles going from sugar to shit was pretty shocking. And they just started making shit up. And then, back to that whole McKinsey analogy, they started calling for firings of coaches and getting rid of players that couldn't win. And I I was like, this is... This is interesting to hear because the morning show sets the, again, you listen all day and you you realize patterns. Morning show sets the tone. Whatever these people say in the morning then gets repeated in the, in the midday, afternoon, evening, wash, rinse, repeat. 
And then it's a big enough show, so all the other little shows, because then you, then as I get closer to the Bay Area, I can hear like the little shows that are, you know, closer to where I'm from. They're echoing, excuse me, the same sentiments from from these mainstream shows. And so the Dallas Cowboys lost in the playoffs, and they haven't really done good in the playoffs in a long time. And and they have what they're saying: the Dallas Cowboys have a playoff drought. They said the Dallas Cowboys haven't won a playoff game in, since like 1995 or something like that, 96. And the Eagles, who just went to a Super Bowl the past season and lost, um, they need to now fire their coach. That's what they said. They need to fire the coach. What? Why? <laughs> what the fuck were the Eagles doing six years ago? Were they going to Super Bowls? Were they competing for division crowns? And then they, they, there's there's a few there's a few things they talk about, which I find fascinating. They go, the window is closing, right? The sense of urgency. And then they would talk about the Niners. The window is closing on the Niners because they, they just have to create controversy. So the San Francisco 49ers, let's just call them what they are, the Santa Clara 49ers. <laughs> got an hour and a half outside of San Francisco. The Niners looked very good for the majority of the year. Like all teams, they had some hiccups in the road. They corrected said hiccups. Players got healthy. On paper, as people say, they have an unbeatable squad. They have two guys that I call cheat codes, Debo Samuel and son of Ed McCaffrey, Christian McCaffrey. They have a quarterback who is not a first-round draft pick, who didn't come from a school that traditionally produces quarterback talent. He didn't come from USC. He didn't come from Alabama. None of the it's a power school, Iowa State, but he himself was not in the running for a Heisman or Davy O'Brien or nothing, right? Brock Purdy is a Niners quarterback, and he was chosen last. And that pick in the NFL draft is called Mister Irrelevant. He gets a parade in Disneyland, right? So. The talk around Brock Purdy, much like the talk that was around a guy like Tom Brady as the Patriots were winning Super Bowls, was that he's a system guy. And again, we said this on the last show. If you can't explain the system, don't just name something. Don't go, it's a West Coast system. What does that mean? I know what the West Coast system looked like in 1984. So you're saying that they're playing in a system that doesn't use the shotgun much and the pro set two tight ends and crossing routes. Cause I don't think that's what they're doing. He's a short pass guy. What does that mean? The entire NFL is using bubble screens and has used the screen game for wide receivers a lot in the last, what, 15 years. So can you explain route concepts that this offense is running? 
Can you explain blocking schemes? Because these are the things that I used to listen to to help me understand the game. For me, football was always like chess. It's the ultimate chess game, right? When the quarterback gets to the line of scrimmage and sees the defense and has to relay to the offensive line, sometimes the receivers, and receivers see the quarterback, and they have to make, all make eye contact to know, okay, he's got inside leverage on me, so we're going to run this option route. And usually if I'm going to run this option route, it's inside leverage, I'm going to go out. There's all these things that go through everyone's head the moment they step up to the line of scrimmage. Those three seconds, those 10 seconds, there's so much going on right there. I love that. The defense is faking blitzes. The offense is faking motions. Coverages are being disguised. I love it. I love it. Talk about that. That's what makes football fun and interesting and cool. If someone goes to me, why do you like football? That's what I say. You know what I don't say? Drama. Give a fuck about drama? That much bullshit drama I do with my own goddamn life. Someone says in the sacks or check me. Exactly, virtuoso. They don't talk about that. They can't talk about that. They don't really know about it. Now, they've diversified the way these shows look. They used to look like, especially the HBO many moons ago had a show called Inside the NFL. I don't know if it still comes on, but when I was a kid, my dad used to be like, this is a show you got to watch inside the NFL. These guys played football. Len Dawson, who I wish I had the picture to show you guys. There's a, there's a great picture of him during Super Bowl one, first ever Super Bowl at halftime. He played, he was a quarterback for the, for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. He's sitting on a folding chair in the locker room of Super Bowl one, smoking a cigarette. Fucking love that picture of Len Dawson. Um, who played for the Chiefs, won a Super Bowl for the Chiefs. I can't remember which one. Four? And Nick Bonacani played for the Dolphins. He played for the undefeated Miami Dolphins. And they would talk about the game. That's it. They eventually brought in, I can't remember who they brought in. That was a little younger. They were bringing younger players from time to time because, you know, the game had changed. These guys were playing right after leather helmets so the game had changed on them right but still there's x's and there's o's i want to know about those x's and those o's um and again most of the morning shows talk about it but next time you watch a morning show especially because it's playoff time see how much time they actually dedicate to x's and o's and how much time they dedicate to like made-up drama so back to this Brock Purdy thing. So Brock Purdy, you know, Mr. Irrelevant, last pick chosen. And the coach of the San Francisco 49ers is a guy named Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan's father, Denver Broncos, back-to-back Super Bowl winning coach Mike Shanahan. <laughs> you know I was going to do that. But anyway, Kyle Shanahan's been around football his whole life. If you watch the San Francisco 49ers winning the 1994 Super Bowl against the San Diego Chargers, Steve Young's only Super Bowl victory, by the way. You see a young Kyle Shanahan on the sideline with, oh, I can't remember his name. He was the coach of the Broncos when they won in 2014. Uh, Gary Kubiak. 
was, I think, the quarterback's coach for the Niners that year. And so, so he's been around the game forever. He, he knows the game very well. His dad um, had a bit of a hybrid system of what his dad had learned under, under Bill Walsh. And uh, Kyle is learning, learned from that. And, you know, as changing as the game is changing and he's looked at as a bit of an offensive mastermind, you look at what he's done with the San Francisco 49ers. Um, what a job that he's done. So the conversation starts out of nowhere. They go, you know, if the Niners don't beat the Packers, who have the youngest roster since 1974, I'm like, I don't know what that means. Did you guys did you guys hear me? Because it looks like I lost connection for a minute or two. But anyway, um, thanks Mexico. For no reason it does that. I don't know why. Bills paid. It's just the uh, the fu you get when you live in neoliberal California. <laughs> anyway, um, the the conversation they try to start is. If Kyle Shanahan and the San Francisco 49ers can't beat the Green Bay Packers, is it time to fire Kyle Shanahan? And I was like, damn. We're coming for you, nigga. Like, why are you guys mad at him? He's done a pretty good job without having high profile players in the big pay positions. So the Niners went to a Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo. For those that don't know, Jimmy Garoppolo was drafted by the Patriots some time ago as the heir apparent to Tom Brady, who just refused to effing retire over there. And uh, the Niners got him. He just can't stay healthy. I think he was very serviceable for what they were trying to do. But when he did stay healthy, the Niners went to a Super Bowl. Um, they lost that Super Bowl. This is a bit of a meltdown. <laughs> they had a lead in the fourth quarter and lost to the Kansas City Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay, surely said repeat my comments about Packers age. So there was a whole narrative about the Packers being young. They were like, the Packers are young. This is the youngest team since 1974. And Chris Canty just kept saying this. The youngest team. I was like, well, I don't know. Tell me why that's relevant. You're not telling me why it's relevant. You're just saying it with some sort of faux urgency. Like I'm supposed to know why this is important. Right? So I'm thinking to myself, and he goes, and the Niners are getting old. Debo Samuel, uh, Christian McCaffrey, Brandon Ayuk, they have to re-sign these people. I was like, that's okay. The re-signing thing, I'll let you have that because that is true. You can't sign everybody. Um, but when you think about the Niners team 
how many first round draft picks on the offensive side of the ball are stars. Christian McCaffrey was a trade. On the defensive side of the ball, the Niners were able to get some pretty good pass rushers for little or nothing. The Niners were able to put together a Madden all-star team from some fire sales. They got Christian McCaffrey for little or nothing. They got Chase Young, a really good pass rusher, for little or nothing. They got Randy Gregory for nothing. This is three good players that are really young. They've had some injuries here and there, but it's football. You're going to have injuries here and there. And what they were trying to say was if they don't win now, the window will close. And I was thinking to myself, what does that mean? The window closes. And I sat there and I thought to myself, it wasn't that long ago that Jim Harbaugh took the Niners to the Super Bowl with another quarterback that was not that highly regarded coming out of a very small University of Nevada, Reno, Colin Kaepernick. You people may know him from his kneeling. (laughs) But that team, I didn't really hear that narrative about that team. The window's going to close. But the window did close. The window slammed effing shut on those guys. Colin Kaepernick had an amazing season. And if you remember that game, the Niners were down like 24 points or something at halftime. And the power went out in the stadium. And, you know, like the storybook finish you couldn't write in a storybook, the Niners make this ferocious comeback. And then, in my opinion, just did four ridiculous things. Like they didn't run the ball to try to score at the goal line. They tried to throw these weird fades to Michael Crabtree. Um, and I thought to myself, wouldn't the greatest ending for the Niners, they had Randy Moss at the time. This was Randy Moss's swan song. Throw a fade to Randy Moss. You know, 6'4 guy that still could jump at that time. Hmm. But anyway, Niners lose. Harbaugh loses to his brother. That was, what, 10 years ago? And here we are. The Niners are a a perennial playoff power once again. So I don't understand the whole the window is going to close shut thing. Why even bring that up? It's not true. It's just not. You can go from sugar to shit back to sugar so quick in professional sports due to free agency and kind of the rapid development of young players. Eliminating the 12 round draft has allowed teams to sign free agents for pennies on the dollar. So again, back to the whole Brock Purdy thing in the San Francisco 49ers, he costs them literally nothing. Your glory glamor position he he was the last player chosen. He's on a minimum deal. 
you can go and re-sign these veterans if you want to, or get some young, flashy guys that do similar things. So is the window really shut? Then you start the narratives about the, the guy that isn't from the flashy school. He's not one of the first three rounds of, of quarterbacks chosen. So he must be a, a system guy. All quarterbacks are system guys. Joe Montana played in a system. Did very well for himself. He's in the Hall of Fame. The man that followed Joe Montana, also in the Hall of Fame, is a gentleman by the name of Steve Young. Living in the San Francisco Bay Area and hating the Niners. Very important caveat. I'm not a Niner fan. I'm a, I'm a football fan first. Sports fan. Football fan. Not a big Niner fan. Bronco fan. You guys know that. Anyway, the news media hated Steve Young because he was antithetical to Joe Montana. Joe Montana got injured a lot. And for some reason, people don't remember that because he wasn't that big. I used to see Joe Montana all the time when I had an office in Walnut Creek and his kids were going to De La Salle High School. He's maybe six feet. His playing weight, he, he was not 200 pounds. That was a little guy. He took some wicked hits. Who is old enough to remember when the Giants were on their Super Bowl run and Jim Burt knocked the dog shit out of Joe Montana? I think he's still afraid of anything large and blue that comes near him. Real talk. Never do I. The only thing they talked about in San Francisco was a quarterback controversy. You know what they never talked about? Getting rid of Bill Walsh. When the Niners lost to the New York Giants, they had won two Super Bowls at that time. In 81 against the Cincinnati Bengals, Bill Walsh against his former team. He was an offensive coordinator for the Bengals. He is the reason why Ken Anderson had all those yards. They used the blueprint of his offensive system. If you remember that game, the Niners had a goal line stance against Archie Griffin, the only two-time Heisman Award winner. That's probably the limit of dumb shit that I know. Anyway, then they beat the offensive firepower of the Miami Dolphins. Also, fun fact, my mom's boyfriend at the time was a huge Niners fan. He was a dude from from Hunters Point, San Francisco, and he recorded every game. And the only thing we had to watch at the house when the illegal cable was out was like this movie called The Wraith that a friend let me borrow that I memorized and the 1984 Super Bowl against the Dolphins that I watched so much I also memorized. Damn, you know, they threw from like 400 yards at me in the loss. That was the year Marino broke every record known to man for passing in his second season in the NFL. He threw for 5,400, 5,200 yards that season, like 44 touchdowns, 48 touchdowns. He was insane that season. 
The Dolphins were the pick to win the game. They also came in with one of the number one defenses in the AFC. They got blown out. Beat the shit out of the Miami Dolphins. And you know what the announcer said? Every time they pan over to, to Dan Marino. This isn't the only time he'll be here. He'll be back. Dan Marino was never back in the Super Bowl. He played his entire career with the Miami Dolphins. And he never tasted another Super Bowl. Never do I remember people saying, got to get rid of Marino. You know, he just can't win the big one. He just doesn't have it in him. Now you hear people have some sort of revisionist history on Dan Marino. But, you know, he never went back. His second year in the, in the, in the NFL, he never was back in the Super Bowl. Joe Montana went two more times, and um, Steve Young only went once. When Steve Young took over for Joe Montana, people hated Steve Young because he ran. He was a runner in college. Steve Young went to BYU University and opted to go to the USFL for more money. Instead of going to the NFL, and and uh, by the time he went to the NFL, he went to the Buccaneers, which was a horrible team at the time. And he split time with the journeyman quarterback named Steve DeBerg. And then a trade happened back before there was a salary cap, and the Niners' whole thing was like stockpiling talent. And their owner Eddie DeBartolo loved stockpiling talent, so um, Steve Young was the backup to Joe Montana. So the, the reason why his numbers aren't as high. He spent so many years, USFL, splitting time in Tampa, and then, you know, Joe Montana, backup. Steve Young won some playoff games. He had some dramatic finishes. There were some great Niner Cowboys, Niner Packer games. But never did they get rid of Steve Young. They didn't like him because he wasn't Joe Montana. But eventually... The 1994 season, they loved them because they were just they were the Niners were extremely dominant that season. The Deion Sanders pickup pff, wasn't even fair at that point. The Niners secondary was second to none. <laughs> I'm killing it today with puns. Steve Young didn't go back to another Super Bowl after that. That was the only time he was in the Super Bowl. Also has a gold jacket, that Steve Young. Bill Walsh in his time at San Francisco. Early on in San Francisco, people didn't like him because this was an unorthodox thing. And the Niners have been bad for a while before he got there. If you look at those early seasons with, with Joe Montana and Dwight Clark, they, they're not very good. It isn't until the 81 season, which is kind of like, oh, whoa, look at these guys. 82, they don't really do much. 83. In 84, they win the Super Bowl. 85, they lose to a very good Chicago Bears team. Forget that. But Bill Walsh in his time in San Francisco 
went to and won four Super Bowls. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, Bill Parcells, another coach, and his time with the New York Giants, who also weren't very good. His his quarterback, Phil Simms, who I believe has a gold jacket. He might not, but I think he does. Um, went to a very small school at Moorhead State. Didn't have a lot of the accolades coming out of college. No one talks very much about Joe Morris, their superstar running back. That was like 5'5". Five, five. Didn't have the longest career, but very productive while he was playing. Um, but we know the Giants in the Bill Parcells era for toughness for some reason. I don't know why. And, you know, Lawrence Taylor in that, in that defense. They went to two Super Bowls in his tenure with the team. That's it. Just two. They lost a lot in the playoffs. Sometimes they didn't even make the playoffs. But there wasn't the 24-hour news cycle. There wasn't an everyday football channel that needed to create drama for drama's sake. Because sports are cyclical, right? There's football season, it's over. And then we talk about basketball. And then we talk about baseball. We talk about track and field. Shit, it's an Olympic year. No, we got to talk about made-up bullshit drama. And I was thinking, there. so there's all this, there's like, Kyle Shanahan can't win the big game, got to get rid of him. I was like, give him a chance to see what happens. The Hall of Fame is filled with people that have never won the quote-unquote big game. Again, Dan Marino is in everyone's conversation about the greatest quarterback of all time. You know who's never in anyone's conversation about the greatest quarterback of all time? Unless you're a fan of this fucking team? Troy Aikman. I've never heard anyone say, Troy Aikman is one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Why? Statistically, he had really good numbers. He was efficient with the football. Emmitt Smith never ran for 2,000 yards while he was with Dallas. So you can't say it was just it was strictly Emmitt Smith. People say, well, he had a great team around him. Again, back to Joe Montana and Steve Young. Look at all the Hall of Famers they played with on both sides of the ball. Hall of Famers on the offensive line. Hall of Fame coaching staffs they played with. So we have to stop that. Doesn't make any sense. Another person that's never in the conversation, Terry Bradshaw. I've never heard anyone call him a system guy. He was to a certain extent, right? Four Super Bowls, Terry Bradshaw has. Troy Aikman has three. Steve Young has one. Aaron Rodgers. Everyone loves Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers this. How many Super Bowl wins does Aaron Rodgers have? He has one. He has one Super Bowl victory. He's got a lot of good seasons. Some MVP seasons where he didn't do shit. 
Team lost in the playoffs. It's a team sport. One guy can't do it all. He can't throw it and catch it to himself, and he can't sack the opposing team's quarterback. It's a team sport. Last I checked. And with that insane pressure that you make sound common in the way you talk about this, right? If Kyle Shanahan doesn't win a Super Bowl, the window will close for the Niners. Again, they were in a Super Bowl. Ever since I've been watching football, the Niners have been in the Super Bowl. I've been watching football like a nerd since I was nine. And my grandmother got me this book called Super Bowl by the Bay because the Super Bowl was played at Stanford the year that. No, I guess I was less than nine. I was seven? Eight. I was eight because it was from a used store. Um, and, then she, and then I got a set of Topps baseball cards. I got the 87 set of Topps football cards. Sorry. And then she was like, I'll get you a subscription to Sports Illustrated if you shut up. <laughs> God bless Gladys Davis. <laughs> um, but, you know, the Niners have always been a Super Bowl contender throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s, throughout the 2000s, even when, with the Jeff Garcia years, they were still going to playoffs. They had some down seasons, as teams do. 2010s, they're back in it. They're literally in it to the last play of the game. And here we are in the 2020s. And the Niners have a chance to go to the Super Bowl again. When is the window closing? This team is always there. Fucking high. That faux sense of urgency that if you don't do this for me now, you are worthless. It doesn't end with sports. Go on a dating app if you're single. My God. The value we put on people. The quickness we have to say people are worthless. These are people. I don't dig it. I do not dig it. David says, I really enjoy watching Moss, though. Dynamic player. It was amazing seeing him at Marshall. If you were at Marshall when Moss was there, do you remember his quarterback? Chad Pennington. Rhodes Scholar. Chad Pennington. Shirley. Shout out to Shirley. What am I doing so good that Shirley's here? Uh, Jerry Rice is the greatest wide receiver. Shirley, there's someone that'll be like, Jerry Rice played in the system. And blah, 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 blah. Jerry Rice used to piss me off. <laughs> I'm a Denver Bronco fan. In 1990, I was... 13, I think I was in the eighth grade, and my father, who didn't have much money, had got me this orange Bronco hoodie. I wanted it, and he was, you know, 
it's one of the few things he doesn't remind me of that he bought me. I, did you guys have dads like that? I'm sure there's some divorced kids watching this show. Where you there was a store that we had in the Bay called Copeland's, and, I, and it's a big chain. I'm sure they have some derivative of this where you're from, where there were the shoes on the wall that were like the new ones, and there was a table next to the wall, and the table had all the old ones. And so we, it was like my dad would be like, "I'm gonna buy you shoes for school." My parents are divorced. My dad's going to you know, help by getting me shoes. So I immediately go to the wall. I'm looking at all the things on the wall. And there's Jordans. And there's all kinds of shit. And then uh, he's like, don't look at the wall, nigga. <laughs> this table is calling your black ass. This table says $29.99. But anyway, I had this orange, <laughs> this bright orange Bronco hoodie. And everyone was a Niner fan. When the Raiders left, everybody was a Niner fan. Because the Niners won. And they were always in the news. Jerry Wrights was doing the Pee Wee Herman in the end zone. Ronnie Lott was beating the shit out of people over the middle. Keena Turner was sacking everybody. This is before Merton Hanks and his goofy ass neck. This is before Dion comes on the 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 Niners. So this is this is a different Niners team. This is Roger Craig rushing for a thousand yards, receiving for a thousand yards, catching a hundred passes out of the backfield. This is Tom Rathman catching like 50 passes and blocking. This is Randy Cross at center. This is those Niners. Everybody was a fan of the Niners. Kushlik says, and you know you're old. You're goddamn right, Kushlik. <laughs> 46 years young, goddammit. You only live... I don't want to say it because it's so cliche. You really only live once. I was at a funeral for my cousin. The woman wasn't that old. 54 ain't old. Mm. A very lively woman. <sighs> Richmond, California is a little bit dimmer with her not being there. So, as I always say, uh, hug your loved ones. Also, as I wear these sunglasses, you guys can't see me tear up, so that's also cool. Um, You know, I'm talking Dwight Clark, Niners, Russ Francis at tight end, Niners, Ray Wershing, kicking with no shoe, Niners, Candlestick Park. Everybody was a Niner fan. And I will never forget this. There was a dude that I went to school with, and he went to my grandparents' church. And he said, I bet you $5 the Niners beat the Broncos, nigga, 55 to 10. I was like, man, that ain't never going to happen. John Elway is the greatest quarterback of all time. John Elway won't stand for that. John Elway got his ass beat 55 to 10. <laughs> they scored so much. They might as well have played Benny Hill music as the Niners was just going to the end zone on the motherfucker. God damn. 
I have never been that upset at a sporting event <laughs> watching the Niners beat the shit out of the Broncos. To this day, if anyone that grew up with me in Richmond sees me, they address me as a real-ass fan. He was like, J.J., a real one, because we when they got their ass beat 55 to 10, he didn't lead them niggas. Thank you for the virtual hug, Alex. And I'm gonna I'm dropboxing that stuff uh, tonight and tomorrow. Side note, um, that's a production thing. You guys don't want to hear, but I have to let him know that. Someone says, <laughs> Bay Planner says, did you get lotto numbers from? <laughs> did you get lotto numbers from homie? He was just talking out of his ass, Bay Planner, as you do when you're a kid. In like the eighth grade. Right? You just say goofy shit. We're 13. We just got hair in places we didn't watch yesterday. And all of a sudden we think we know everything. And god damn it he was right. The coach that followed Bill Walsh. George Seifert. Won one Super Bowl. Or no did he win two? No he won one. Because he didn't, he wasn't the coach in 90. Oh, he was the coach in 90. So he went two. Someone double check that. I think Seifert came on in 90. Because I think Bill Walsh retires after the Niners beat the Bengals on Joe Montana's 90-yard drive. Where Jerry Rice just dominated that game. We're talking about greatest wide receiver of all time. Jerry Rice dominated that game against the Bengals. He's the MVP of that Super Bowl. And the Bengals were a really good team. They had a really good defense. Boomer Esiason was just slinging it that year. They had a great play-action game. Mm. Mm. The Bengals were one of those teams where you're just like, oof. There's a great show that I wish these shitty pundits would watch. And the NFL channel put it out, and it started, oh, God, maybe 10 years ago now. It was called The Missing Rings because they do a thing every year for the Super Bowl where they do this this journey, a team's journey to the Super Bowl. And, I'm again, I'm one of these kids that just – I don't want to say I'm a student of football. I'm just a fan. And if you guys remember, if you're old enough, and I'm sure Claw's old enough to remember this, um, my mom just – I just want to let you guys know for the auto listeners, my mom has chimed in. Um, who sadly I didn't get a chance to see. I was only up in the Bay Area for an extremely short time. Says, how do you remember all this stuff, huh? Love you, Mom. Because I have never drank. (laughs) (laughs) A very good friend of mine named Ray Selway looked at me one day and goes, this is what happens when you never do drugs or drink. You remember all this stupid shit. So that is why. (laughs) You want to know why? That is why. But um, <laughs> my mom kind of, kind of, kind of uh, threw me off. Where, where were we going? Someone remind me where we were, because now I totally forgot. Thanks a lot, mom. 
You know, I'm emotional right now. But the missing rings. So the missing rings is about teams that didn't win the Super Bowl. Their journey. Because, you know, they do the Super Bowl thing and the guys are like, you know, we started and they show them the, during the camp or maybe or maybe they lost like a year before. Right. I love the 97 Broncos one because in 96, the Broncos were just dominant. And I knew they were going to win. They lose the first round of the playoffs. They had home or their, their, their first game of the playoffs. They had home field advantage. They lost the Jaguars. I'm still pissed about that. And I don't remember hearing people talking about firing Mike Shanahan. And I don't remember hearing people talk about John Elway's too old and can't do this. I don't remember hearing them talk about blowing up the team. I don't remember hearing them talk about the windows closing. I don't remember that at all. Next year, the Broncos won the Super Bowl. They beat a very good Packers team. Who was two touchdown favorites. But anyway, the missing rings is about the teams that just didn't get it done. And there's some interesting stories behind that. You know, ESPN also did like a 30 for 30 on the Bills because the Bills are the only team in the modern era of professional football to go to the Super Bowl four times in a row. And they lost every time. Every time. Robert Booth says, who is your least favorite announcer? Mine is Joe Buck. Robert Booth, I'm with you, brother. We are simpatico on that note. The Buffalo Bills had one of the funnest teams to watch. Andre Reed at receiver, who was kind of the AFC's Jerry Rice. Thurman Thomas, who, if you guys remember, started over Barry Sanders at Oklahoma State. He was a beast. He was a beast at Oklahoma State. Jim Kelly, in some version of the spread, they called the K-Gun. Whew! Daryl Talley at linebacker. Bruce Smith, the sack master. Oh, Bills were a fun team to watch. You know who the Bills beat in some of those AFC championship games to get to the Super Bowl? The Raiders. You guys forgot that? The Raiders were that good back in the day. They were getting to the AFC championship game. One game, they beat them like 58 to 3. It stomped a mud hole in the Raiders' behinds. But I don't remember after the second Super Bowl loss the Bills suffered to the Washington Redskins, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. Pretty good Redskins team. Right, the Redskins have been good. Again, another team that, you know, the 70s, eh. The 80s, they're really, really good in the NFCs. Joe Gibbs won his fair share. I think Joe Gibbs has three Super Bowls under his belt. But um, there was no talk about a window closing. There was no talk about um, firing the coach, getting rid of Jim Kelly. 
Nope. Nope, nope, nope. That was never the conversation. Because the people that were commenting on sports were not gamblers and fantasy football people and and drama addicts. We weren't addicted to drama yet. There's a there's people, I was going to say a person, but there's multiple people that will upload a game from the 70s some from the 80s, and they're random games. But you get the pregame show, you get the halftime show, they upload the whole presentation from that network, CBS or NBC. There was no Fox at the time. It's interesting to hear the banter of these games because the drama talk isn't there. I just finished writing 3,000 words. Hopefully, someone will want to publish it. I am not sure about media coverage that we're going to get for this upcoming presidential election and how skewed it will be. Because narratives will have to be created, much like these people were just creating narratives on the effing fly this morning. If so-and-so doesn't win, who's the real MVP? What? What? Who gives a shit about who the MVP? Like, seriously. The people want – this is the sports show on this channel. I can kind of see out of the corner of my eye the chat. Do you give a damn about who wins the MVP? Some of you guys are hardcore gamblers. You might have money on something like that because you can bet on that now. But seriously, who cares? I never cared. I cared about my team. John Elway won one MVP that I can remember. I don't think he won one in the 90s. I think he just won in 87. I know he was a Super Bowl MVP the last game he played. I feel like that's the MVP you probably really give a damn about is the Super Bowl MVP. Right? I would think. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, But they were having this heated discussion over the fact that Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, should not be in the same conversation as a good quarterback as Lamar Jackson, who was a quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. I was thinking to myself, why? I think Josh Allen has more playoff wins than Lamar Jackson, number one. And they both suffer from interceptionitis from time to time they're both pretty mobile and they both had to make major adjustments to their game as they came into the pros and the argument made by chris canty is that josh allen gets too much respect where where uh lamar jackson he feels is judged a little more there's a little more scrutiny behind the critique of Lamar Jackson. And I was thinking to myself, okay, but you're forgetting that Lamar Jackson went to Louisville, 
where he won a Heisman his junior year. And if you watch any any video of him that that Heisman season, I think he rushed for like 1,800 yards, something ridiculous like that, threw for another 3,000. He had like video game numbers that year. He came back the next year. Oof, that was ugly watching him play. He just was throwing some really bad interceptions. Josh Allen, if you watched any of Josh Allen video while he was at the University of Wyoming, which is barely a Division One school, um, he was a fifty percent, barely fifty percent. I think he was. A, I think he left school as like forty six percent completion passer, so he barely completed passes. He ran way more than he threw. And he was going to be a project from jump. Both of these guys were going to be a project from jump. And it's kind of, to me, as a fan of the game, it's fun to be able to see these guys play, compete against each other, and grow as players. I'm old enough to be a part of the generation that grew up with the 83 class of quarterbacks. Steve Young technically is part of that class, right? So Elway, Marino, Todd Blackledge, you know, if Mac was here, he'd, he'd bring this guy up so quick. Tony Eason, who went to the playoffs with the New England Patriots. He was not a chump. Roger Craig came out that year. Uh, Daryl Green, the cornerback for the, the Hall of Fame cornerback for the Redskins, comes out in the 83 draft. That draft was filled from top to bottom with so much talent and to be able to watch these guys the next year the first quarterback taken if i'm not mistaken is boomer esiason in the second round like that's how little quarterback talent came out the following year and it really speaks to the power of punditry to project people and a need for people into the draft Somebody pull it up if I'm lying, if I'm, if I'm wrong. Not that I'm lying. I could be wrong. I don't have it in front of me. But if I'm not mistaken, the first quarterback taken in 84 is Boomer Esiason in the second round. There's got to be somebody that can look that up. I'd be very shocked if there's a quarterback taken. In the first round in 84. I cannot remember who that would have been. <laughs> but if there was no quarterback talent, you didn't effing draft a quarterback. Not anymore. You ha- you have to. You have to. There's always someone coming out to st- in someone's mind. It's like, nah, man. <laughs> like draft hype it's just that it's hype and again excuse me if my pathway in this conversation is like lombard street but back to the brock purdy and always questioning his ability tom brady by the time he won his third super bowl and i think mac brought this up 
David Epps. Thank you, David. 84. Boomer Esiason was drafted at 34. First quarterback drafted. Uh, Tom Brady didn't really start getting respect as a quarterback and not a system guy or benefiting from a strong defense until like his third Super Bowl victory in New England. Um, Brock Purdy, sadly, suffers that same fate where, oh, well, he was Mr. Irrelevant. They, they were kids kept on, well, Brock Purdy's Mr. Irrelevant. He's Mr. Irrelevant for a reason. And I'm thinking to myself, what is that reason? That's the, that's the dumbest thing to say. Let's just talk about some misses at the quarterback position. I'll name a few. First round misses. Does anyone remember the University of Houston in the late 80s and what they were doing with run and shoot football? The University of Houston was beating people 77 to 6, 84 to 20. They were insane. And there was two quarterbacks I remember extremely vividly. Andre Ware was one. Who was the first one to put just there was no video games you could play to save video game numbers at this time. And this is back when you played 11 games, maybe 12 with a bowl game. In like 10, 11 games, these guys were throwing for 4,000 yards. At a time when a quarterback threw for 1,800 or 2,000 yards, he was like, oh, wow, that guy can really throw it. He can really sling it. Andre Ware and David Klingler both threw for like 5,000 yards, like 10 games. But because of the offense that they played in and because of the way the game was structured back then, you would have to fit into a system. If you had the tools, height, arm strength, Pretty good peripheral vision, the ability to process information extremely quickly, which they thought these guys had in spades because of the quickness of the system in which they operated in in college. It would transfer over to the pros. And again, back to really watching football. I remember when David Klingler got drafted by the Bengals, if I'm not mistaken, in 89, 90. Was it 90? Got drafted by the Bengals. They had to teach him how to do a seven-step drop. He didn't know how to do it, which was very common for football back then. Right? This is still run-heavy NFL. He couldn't do a seven-step drop. He had to learn footwork. Your first-round draft pick had to learn footwork. And there was the news show, the sports pregame show, showing you how difficult it is for this guy to take seven steps backwards. He couldn't do it. Now the game is a little more formatted for the strengths of the player. And we, the fans, are benefiting from that. If Jim Harbaugh would have told Colin Kaepernick, who had played in a very interesting offense in Reno, it is the coach of, of Reno, I don't know if he's still there, that created something that's very common you see in the NFL now. To this day, you see it in the NFL called the pistol, where you're not all the way back in shotgun, 
there's a running back behind you. And certain running backs really liked the pistol because they could, please don't tease me, they could hit the whole square. Chris Alt, thank you, Joey. Klingler picked six in 1992. Thank you, David. I knew it was in the early 90s. I couldn't remember exactly the year. Um, so the pistol was was this hybrid formation that just allowed Colin Kaepernick to do some ungodly things at the University of Reno, Nevada. I think he threw for like 10,000 yards in his time there and ran for like four or 5,000. I think I've said this on the show before. The family, the white family I lived with for a while, I started, you know, I watched a lot of college football there. So me and the dad watched college football and I was like, hey, there's this guy named Kaepernick. And so he was like, you know, I really like that Kaepernick because, you know, live on the West Coast. You get these Mountain West games later. They actually bought tickets to a bowl game in San Francisco to go see Colin Kaepernick play his last college game. Jim Harbaugh then altered the offense to highlight the strengths of Colin Kaepernick. I shouldn't say him on his own, you know. And the, and the team, the offensive brain trust at the time in San Francisco. And what did Kaepernick do? They beat Green Bay. What did he run for, like 180 yards or something crazy like that? It's fun to watch. What we're seeing with Lamar Jackson, he's fun to watch. How much fun did you guys have watching Cam Newton when he hit the league. Oh. If RG3 doesn't have that knee injury, what does he do in the NFL? My goodness, that dude was like a deer out there. You barely catch him. I don't hear too much talk about that. On these shows. Maybe that's boring to people. And I'm sorry if I'm boring. The, it looks like a few people that are watching right now. About about this kind of talk. But. Again. This is why I'm, I'm not watching the game. To hear about Cam Newton. He cries on the sideline. And he got in a fight with the receiver. And he's not getting along with the coach. Because you think that. Again. If you watch a game. At the end. You'll see something says writers. Storyboard editor. There's a narrative. If so and so throws an interception, cut to the quarterback because we're gonna. We, that's part of the storyline we have that he doesn't. He's not a good winner. He's a sore loser. That's how you get things like um. He's a competitor. Look at him. He's a competitor. He's a he, the guy. He's you know. Look at him sulking on the sidelines. He's not a competitor. What? <laughs> I don't even understand. Why is that guy like good, a good human, and then this other, this young man that got drafted first overall, that's got the hopes of a city on his shoulders. He's got the hopes of a people on his shoulders because he just got treated like freaking Wakanda. Eight years before Negroes take that, you know, fantastic voyage to the fictional land of Wakanda. He didn't wear the number one in college. He wore the number two. 
when he single-handedly defeated the Oregon Ducks in the championship game. I do not say that with pride, as I am a Pac-12 homer. Or will be, even in its demise. He wore the number one as some sort of homage to Warren Moon, who is still shocked of how far we've come. Warren Moon was a dominant player in high school in South Central Los Angeles. Can't get an offer. Plays at the junior college level. Dominates at the junior college level. University of Washington will give him a shot. And what does he do at the University of Washington? Wins a title. NFL, we change positions. You black guys just don't make good quarterbacks. We've tried it a little bit here and there. You guys just don't process information the way that these other dudes do. That wasn't the the thought across the board. We forget that there were black quarterbacks in some some teams. Vince Evans played. Um, I can't remember the black quarterback in the seventies. That was a quarterback of the Rams. Um, Joe Gilliam for the Steelers. Um, who Terry Bradshaw was terrified of. He was a Joe Gilliam to this day. He's like that guy is way better than me. Um, we forget that era. The one was, again, an homage to Warren Moon. So this kid is sitting there with all of that on his plate. You don't get drafted number one by the best team in sports. You get drafted number one in football. There's no lottery by the worst team in the league. So Cam Newton goes to the worst team in the league and just is throwing bombs and running for touchdowns. And giving the ball to kids in the in the stands. At one point, I think when Cam was injured one year, he rescued somebody from a car accident. And what was the narrative around Cam Newton? He's a bad dude. Look at him. He puts a towel over his head when he makes a mistake. That's not what a leader does. Hmm. Interesting. You are asking a 22-year-old young man, I'm not going to say child, I'll say young man, to go up to 28, 29, 30-year-olds and tell them what to do? You let me know how that works out for you. (laughs) I'm being serious. There's some parents watching the show right now. James Harris, thank you, Dr. Claw. There's some parents watching the show right now. And if you had a 20-some-year-old child trying to tell you what to do, even if they're right, and I don't care what color you are, you're going to give them the nigga, please, right? In your own way. Everybody has it. Foolishness. But that was the narrative around this 20-some-year-old kid who threw for like 4,000 yards that season. 
the year before, if I'm not mistaken, is the year that RG3 and, and Andrew Luck come out. And those guys are just flinging it all over the field. And I remember talking to some friends and going, can you believe all of our heroes are retiring and we're getting this new crop of dudes coming in that are just balling? Football is so much fun. That's what we said. Bay Planner says Cam Noon's wardrobe bars him from opinions. <laughs> I believe we did the Cam Newton thing on the champagne room. Cam Newton's clothes are hilarious. I don't know if he has a voodoo mammy that dresses him or a pop locker from the 70s. But whoever is dressing Cam Newton, if you're pranking the world, you, my friend, are the new Andy Kaufman because that shit is hilarious. Someone says, um, the refs let Cam get roughed up. Yeah. Yeah. We got to be honest. If you are a running, a running quarterback, you're going to take some L's. Finna get finna get destroyed. Somebody says hot dog on stick. <laughs> Cam Newton. I have never heard of a drug scandal, a relationship scandal. There was all he had was that he stole a laptop when he was in college. Oh. He did a stupid thing in college. Huh. Hmm. I don't need to celebrate anyone that does a stupid thing in college, but I'm 46 and I still do stupid shit. So, you know, if that's all you got is that he did something stupid in college, like stole a laptop, then that's not much. Someone asks, is Josh Allen the new Cam Newton? No, I think I think um, Justin Fields might be the new Cam Newton. I say that because he's, he takes so much punishment because he runs so much, and he's asked to do a lot. Cam Newton took a team to the Super Bowl that was not ready for the Super Bowl. The Denver Broncos defense beat Cam Newton in a way – that I've never seen grown people beat up on other grown people. Like that looked like an assault. (laughs) (laughs) Oof. Will not take laptops near Chase. Joey's a buzzkill. Joey, I don't know why you're a buzzkill, but you are a friend to this show with this comment. Josh Allen is the new Dante Culpepper. (laughs) Remember Dante Culpepper? That 6'6", giant country bitch, Just flinging it all over the place. Wasn't as good as Randall Cunningham, though. 
Oof. The way people want to give up on humans, even in the sporting context, never never act like it doesn't influence the way people see the world and the way we're, we feel so comfortable to give up on humans in the world. The way we see no value in people, so we just throw them away. I need my quick turnaround. I need what I want when I want it, and I want it now. And and I think that's what I wanted to get across in this show. And and, and a lot of, look, I'm not going to lie to you guys. A lot of, I've going through a lot of emotions going home, and I wasn't home for that long. Actually, home is here, so going up north. Um, my daughter likes this coffee creamer that you can only get here in Mexico. I feel like she made that up, but I don't know. I'll take her word for it. And so I never bring gifts for her because she's an adult. <laughs> she's 25. And I did have a gift for my five-year-old. But I remembered she liked this creamer. And so right before I leave, I, I run to the store and I grab the creamer and I make sure I have it. So I was going to see her just to give her this creamer. And I say, um, and she lives not far from the funeral parlor. And I was like, hey, I got you a surprise. And then she just, I didn't, just didn't hear from her. And so as I get closer to where she lives, I said, I said, um, hey, I'm, I'm nearby. I, I got you that coffee creamer. She goes, you know, I was hoping you got me the coffee creamer. She talks really fast. Just a 25-year-old girl. <laughs> My daughter talking. And um, she goes, well, I'm ready to go with you to the, to the, to the thing, to the viewing. And I was like, you don't have to go with me. She goes, I'm, I'll be your plus one. And I laughed and I said, I don't need a plus one. I, I know the people there. <laughs> you may not know the people there, but I know the people there. You know, because you know how it is when it's a cousin. It's kind of a distant cousin. Your kid wasn't always brother. You know how it is. You guys know how it is. And she goes, no, no, no. I'm dressed and ready to go. Where are you? Are you close? Okay. I'm outside. She was. She was outside. She was waiting in the, in the rain. And I'm glad she came. I was. I, I, I didn't expect. It. I thought I was going to be there and see a few family members here and there. And <sighs> yeah, I'm glad she came. That's uh. I feel lucky that that's my kid. So I want to say that on air that I'm <clears throat> my kids are all right. <sighs> but um, people aren't disposable. And that's kind of all I heard on my 12 hours home was the disposability of people. And that message gets juxtaposed 
to the homelessness that I saw everywhere. I make this drive so much, I know where to stop strategically so I can get the most out of my gas and not spend a lot of money, right? Or as least money as possible. Because you can go to the wrong stop on the five, and and this is everywhere in America. And again, as someone that's driven everywhere in America, I know how these stops are, truck stops. If you stop at the wrong truck stop, the gas price goes. Speaking of Josh Allen, he's from a place called Fireball, which is in the Central Valley of California. If you go to the Fireball truck stop, gas is $6 a gallon. If you drive 20 minutes further, it's $4 a gallon. So, again, you have to be strategic with your stops for gas. And for the first time, I saw homeless people at these out-of-the-way truck stops. When I say out-of-the-way, this is the middle of nowhere. There's People aren't disposable. Are we that seduced by neoliberalism that we actually have values that we put on people? (laughs) A use value. It, It it hit me. Nobody was begging. Don't know why. But I was like, man. This is nowhere. How'd you even get here? I don't like the fact that that's the way people see sports because it becomes the way you see the world and it becomes the way you even see policy. The consensus for most Americans when it comes to our unhoused brothers and sisters is that they are a blight. We want to put that blight away. Maybe we don't want cops with Kevlar vests and guns to put them away. Maybe we want magical social workers with swords to put them away. We want someone just to put it out of our sight, and they'll take care of it. We don't know how they're going to take care of it, but they'll take care of it. Good friend called me to complain about her job working in services because I joke and we listen. Or I listened to her and oof. She's not a leftist like most people that work in services. The last thing on her mind is probably Trump Biden bullshit. Cause she's so inundated with real people and real people problems. Trying to constantly save people from even getting evicted from whatever temporary housing they have, right? 
And a constant talking point with a lot of people on, you know, Democrats and Republicans when it comes to unhoused people. And it's very true. As someone that worked in that world, it's true. Is that these people don't want housing. Yeah, kind of. But it's not in that way that you think they're they're like these untitled uh, or, or entitled individuals and they want like perfect situations. You have to understand if you're an authority figure, and you're talking to a homeless person that's been chronically homeless that was born in prison or in foster care at a young age, any authority figure, anybody with a clipboard, you all you've done is take. You've taken them away from their mother and father. Maybe you took them out of a good foster care back with a parent who to put them out on the street. Maybe you took them from one shitty foster home to another shitty foster home. Maybe you took them from a shitty house to a juvenile detention facility. Um, maybe they were in a house and they got kicked out of that for the smallest infraction or a paperwork error. There was one woman my friend was telling me about that she goes, she knows the language like she's in a program, but there was no program that she was attached to. I had to call the people and say, hey, this lady says she's supposed to be in your program for a year. And they go, oh, yeah, our bad. We forgot for a year. For a year. How would you then trust anyone? Because that's all you have. If you pay rent, you have more rights. If you're a homeowner, you have way more rights. If you own multiple properties, well, you have hella rights. If you don't own shit, you get treated like a child. Just let's marinate on that for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to end the show soon. I've been whining too long. But you get treated like a child. You have to ask for permission for everything. And there's people that will say, well, that's their fault because they made bad choices. We've all made bad choices. Everybody listening to the show the motherfucker talking to you on this phone. We've all made bad choices. Is is the payback for the bad choice a lifetime of suffering? Does that make one feel better? Again, I tell you guys all the time, I know people that have committed crimes and they've served their entire sentence. Buddy, I'm going to be, I mean, he has a podcast out here. Got caught with some dope. Sat down in federal prison for 10 years. Served his entire sentence. 120 months. Did the whole wop. 
got out, got deported. Yes, even Ben Burgess has been arrested. Got out, got deported. Lifetime, can't can't go back. Can't see your kids when you want. Can't see your family when you want. Your world was not over here because you left not on your own volition. You got snatched up and taken into a country. You had no say-so on that. If there is a debt to society that you were supposed to pay, you paid it. You didn't pay it so good you got out early. You paid the entire thing off. You paid all the motherfucking interest on the debt. And you got the double punishment. That's just part of it, right? And then you have this other thing where there's the, you, if you've grown up in with a shitty situation, you don't have any rights. You know, my friend is telling me about this facility she works at. It's an apartment. And she goes, there's no washer dryers in the place yet. And the area of the Bay Area that it's in is extremely suburban. So guess what there's not? Wash houses. Because why would you have a laundromat in a super suburb? That doesn't make any sense. You got to ask for everything. You think everybody got a fucking car there? Right? Maybe staying in your car in a tent on a fucking street corner under an awning at least you know how to navigate that shitty situation. And you can have a little bit of dignity and be in a little bit more control of your life, or at least feel that way, right? It's not as simple as people just don't want housing. It's that they don't trust us. Who is willing to put in the time to build that level of trust? There was a time in my life I was willing to put in the time to build that level of trust. And it beats you the hell up. It's rough. It's not fun. And here I am. Because I couldn't hack it. Maybe that's why I left. But these sports people suck. Gambling and fantasy sports merging to make one disgusting thing. McKinsey 
level analysis about what ownership should do to get the fans of the sport in line with ownership is disgusting. How can we really think we're having a labor moment when the most popular programs on television, sports, are all focused on ownership? Building stadiums, salary caps. Why do we give a shit about the plight of the capitalist? I don't know. Maybe we should. On that note, it is late. I want to thank everybody that took the time to hang out with me. I will be back tomorrow. I should be back with Pascal Robert. We'll be talking with returning guest Michael Albert. I'm going to go read a lot of marks because I have to read a lot of marks for the show tomorrow because the whole show is about should we even be talking about marks when we talk about organizing and leftism i mean do you alienate more people when you try to quote them than you bring to the table can we form our own opinions all right so that'll be the show tomorrow it should be a good show i'm excited for that and then friday we're gonna have movie night so if you're a patron join us for movie night we're gonna be watching a really cool movie called rollerball which is about what happens in a society when corporations have solved all the problems, they've solved world hunger, they've solved war, but people are addicted to this violent game called rollerball. Um, and then we're watching the original James Conn version. So the, the, the scenes that you see in the, what I'm going to play for the outro video, that's rollerball. Not that L.O. Cool J shit. We are not watching that. Right? Gross. So I forgot to put the post up for movie night. I will put it up tonight for patrons. If you guys enjoy what we do here at TIR, we have some great shows coming up um, next week as well um, that I'm really excited about. We'll be talking about Argentina's fascist past like there's a lot that we're doing i got so much reading to do amber a lee frost is coming on the show in a couple weeks talk about her new book trying to make it happen as best i can for you guys so if you enjoy what we do here at the very least can you give the show a like can you hit subscribe if you really, really like what we do and you have the means and you feel so inclined, become a patron. $3 a month, $30 for the year. We can make sure we can continue to do this for hopefully the foreseeable future. So on that note, everybody, I will see most of you people plus a few more tomorrow. And I am out.